in case you're wondering. I was listening to him drone away when a man came by the church building and stopped by the window and said, Psst, psst. I said, what is it? I'm listening to the sermon. He said, come with me. I said, where are you going? He said, I know where there is a pearl of great price that's more valuable than anything in the world. I said, there's no such thing. He said, in fact, where I'm going, there is a treasure buried in a field. I said, you're kidding. He said, where I'm going, bums are invited to sit down at the king's table. He said, that's ridiculous. He said, in fact, they give great big parties for prodigals who come home. And I said, that's just crazy. Finally, he went on, and I listened to the rest of the sermon. After it was over, I told the preacher about how I'd been disturbed by the guy outside the window and and how I hoped it didn't bother him during his sermon. He said, who was that guy anyway? I said, I don't know, just some guy telling me all this crazy stuff. He said, well, was, was he getting anybody to go with him? And I said, well, none of our group went, but I noticed he had about 12 guys with him. It's an interesting way of focusing on what is probably one of the greatest challenges for any of us who really want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You see, we we don't want to ignore Jesus' call to discipleship. We want to respond. We want to follow. We really do. We just want to modify that just a little bit so it fits in better with life as we know it and enables us to pursue the ideals given to us by the world in which we live. You know, the stuff that we kind of lump together and call the American dream. We love Jesus. We really do. We, we want to follow him. We want to honor God. We want to serve him more effectively. We want to know him more intimately. We really do. We, we just want to be able to do that without making too much of a change in the lifestyle and the values that we've gotten accustomed to. Now, honestly, that's not anything new. When we look in the pages of the New Testament, we see any number of examples of of people who are encountering that, that very same struggle. Perhaps one of the most clear and succinct examples of that is Something that happened, it's recorded in Mark chapter 10. There was this guy that that came up to Jesus. And and he asked him what he needed to do to inherit eternal life. Now, don't misunderstand here. This isn't some reject. This isn't some two-time loser. Some some guy who was kind of desperate to to find his way out of a bad place he was in or a, a sorry position in life. To the contrary, this is a guy that most of us would very much admire. He he may even be somebody we would hope to become. He was obviously a person of faith, 
a person of, of high values and, and, and integrity and, 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 and strong ethics. He, he cared about spiritual things. I mean, so much so that, that he wasn't afraid to acknowledge there may be something he was missing. And he wasn't even afraid to go to someone who had a bit of an unconventional approach to spiritual matters. Because if there was anybody in that day that was unconventional in his approach to matters of faith, it was this teacher they called Jesus. And so he goes and he asks Jesus this question. And at first, Jesus responds probably exactly the way he would have expected Jesus to respond. He said, you know what to do. Just, just keep the commandments. Just, just obey the law. This isn't complicated. And the man responds by saying, yeah, I, I know, but, but I got that down. I mean, I've been doing that ever since I was a little kid. Is there something else that I'm missing? And it's real interesting how Mark describes it. In verse 21 of Mark 10, he says, Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And Mark says, well... The guy just couldn't handle that. You see, he was really well off. He was one of the more affluent people around. I mean, he had been very successful. And he had a really nice little nest egg. And he just couldn't quite bring himself to do that. It wasn't that he wasn't sincere in wanting to follow Jesus. He really was. In fact, I think that's confirmed by what Mark says in the next verse, verse 22. He says he was very sad to hear Jesus say this. And he, and he left sorrowfully. And this guy was heartbroken. He's not playing games. He's not just trying to pretend to cash in on, you know, Jesus' notoriety or something. He's not a hypocrite pretending to want to follow Jesus and not really. To the contrary, he's a man of integrity who isn't going to kind of half-heartedly follow Jesus. If he can't do it, he's going to walk away. And the price was just a little too steep. So he does. He walks away. Now, when we come to a story like this, we aren't quite sure what to do with it. I mean, it's a little, a little too radical for most of us. A little too extreme, don't you think? I mean, we hear of people doing something like this from time to time. Not very often, but occasionally we'll hear of somebody doing something like this. And when we do, well, maybe not physically, but at least mentally, we kind of shrug our shoulders and go, well, all right. I mean, you know, whatever. Sounds a bit on the, on the extreme side to me. I mean, that may be what Jesus told this guy to do. But then after all, Jesus could see into people's hearts. Jesus probably knew something about this situation, about this circumstance that, that was different. 
You know, he probably looked into this guy's heart and, and realized he was, he was kind of self-absorbed. You know, he was, he was, he was so depend, self, self-reliant, depending on himself. And maybe he was proud. And Jesus understood that if he didn't do this, he was never going to be able to really trust in God the way he needed to. And so Jesus told him to do that. But that doesn't mean he wants us to do anything like this. And so we sort of explain away some of the things that Jesus says so that they don't really apply to us. And we continue to go about our lives following Jesus in a a more comfortable, less demanding way. We, we, We want to follow Jesus. We just sort of feel compelled to redefine what it means to follow him. So some of this hard stuff is is set aside. And we focus on making things as as comfortable and, and, and as fulfilling for people in the church as we can. And, and as appealing to people outside the church as we can. We don't want... We don't want this business of following Jesus to be too much for anyone. We certainly don't want to be lumped in with those people that are considered kind of, you know, religious fringe, you know, kind of radicals. And so we mostly wind up talking about how God loves us, how he wants us to be happy and fulfilled and and give us good things and, and, and stuff like that. And you know what? All of that is wonderfully true. But if that's all we talk about, then we're leaving out a whole dimension what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Sometimes, though, sometimes something happens that causes us to stop and think, maybe to kind of re-examine the way we've made following Jesus into a nice, tidy lifestyle that fits in with where we already are. There's a group of ladies recently uh, that I think they have a book club or something, and they, were, they, they read a book, and talked about it, shared about it. It really challenged them that way. I want you to listen to some of their experience with that. We, uh, this summer, we were looking for some books to read, and Holly and I had read the book Seven by Jen Hatmaker, and it had really spoken to both of us, and so uh, we had encouraged our book club to read that. And just a quick summary of it, it's, uh, she, Jen Hatmaker fasted in a manner. She reduced seven different things from her life in seven different months, and, and It really struck me personally like um, it had been, it was the end of the summer and that God had spoken to me all throughout the summer about um, Micah 6.8. Seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, as if that would be just that, as if it would be that simple. And it had spoken to me about... um, the um, ways to reach out to the poor. And that's what she had, her reflections of all of those things were to um, 
were to eliminate all of those things, she was able to better serve. Before we um, suggested this to book club, Sarah and I had talked, and I said, I really, when I had the book, but I really didn't want to read it. It was one of those things where it's going to make me feel guilty. Here's this lady, she's going to do seven things, and I'm going to be forced to give up. And when I read the book, it wasn't like that at all. It just, um, it put discomfort in me. It's like, what am I doing in my life to change? I'm going through a similar process as Sarah. I've just been reaching out and praying that God use me as a specific purpose in his will. And I haven't found that yet. And by reading the book, I just feel like she at least opened my eyes that I can do more. And one of the quotes for the book I thought was powerful. It says, where have I substituted the American dream for God's kingdom? And I think that's so powerful for all of us because we get so wrapped up in today's world, in today's society. We just have come this over-consumer making it more about us, and I want to really try to live God's kingdom. I think that's, I mean, we are all about us and what makes me better and what, what's good for me. Um, but the book is about fasting, and she's not telling anyone that you need to do this, but it's very biblically oriented. And it did make me think, okay, is my life about self-denial and really about God's doing working God's kingdom or is it more about just making me happy or pleasing me and, and and even little changes like you know she does this um, month where she recycles and she starts composting now I don't know that I'm into the composting thing but, <laughs> um, but I can recycle I can make small changes that if we all did it it could make a big difference you know and it may not make any difference whether I don't purchase a little knickknack, but then again, if we all chose to say, you know what, I've got plenty, then, you know, that might make a difference. It's so easy for it to become all about us. Have you noticed? I mean, everywhere we look, the emphasis is on self, self awareness, self development. Self-realization, self-actualization, self-value, self-love. Self, it just goes on and on and on. It's all about what we're going to do for us. And then when you take that and you couple it with this intense consumer orientation that our world tells us is the way it's supposed to be, that's what it's about, we wind up starting to think that that's normal. That that's the way it, it's just supposed to be. But when we look at God's followers in, in the New Testament, we see a very different picture. That's exactly what we have painted for us at the end of Acts chapter 4, a passage that we read just a few minutes ago. Beginning of verse 32 it says, all of the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There were no needy people among them. Verse 34, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Wow. 
<laughs> when I was younger and I read this, I thought, boy, that sounds like communism to me. Well, it's not. There, there are some parallels to communism, but it's very, very different. See, in communism, you have the enlightened working class that takes control, takes control of government, takes control of business, takes control of all the finances, and then redistributes it to all the people so that everybody has what they need. At least that's the idea. It doesn't ever seem to work out that way, but that's, that's the idea behind it. But that's not what this is at all. This is not people who had something taken from them. To the contrary, this was something that they voluntarily gave up. They, they weren't forced to do anything, but they gave their possessions willingly to help people in need. Now, does that sound, is it just me or does that sound amazingly like what Jesus was telling the guy back in Mark 10? This wasn't just something that, that happened just this one time. I mean, we're, we're only in Acts chapter 4. We've already read about him doing it twice in Acts 2 and now Acts 4. And it didn't stop here. A hundred years later, there was a, a guy, a, a Greek writer named Lucian, lived from 120 to 200 A.D., and he was, uh, well, they called him a satirist. He, he was somebody that, that didn't have any use for religion at all. He lumped all religions together and called them superstitions. But when he, when he observed these people who followed Jesus, he, look, look at what he said. He said, it's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, that was how he referred to Jesus, has put it in their heads that they are brothers. And don't misunderstand. This isn't to suggest that everybody sold all their houses and everything they had and nobody had anything. That's not, that's not what happened. Because we read over and again in the New Testament about the, the church that met in this person's house or the per church that was in that home. So they still had homes. But people that were able sold stuff and, and gave it to help the people who were poor. They had, they had a situation not where they were required to do anything, but where they so wanted to express their love for each other that they just they wanted to do that. Why would they do that? Well, I think the clue is at the very beginning of verse 32. He says, all the believers were united in heart and in mind. You see, they loved each other deeply. And the honest truth is, whenever you love somebody, it's going to cost you. I mean, it, it always does. We know that. Two people, man and woman, to grow to love each other, decide they're going to marry Costs them. I'm not talking about the wedding. I'm talking about being married. It costs financially. It costs emotionally. It costs personally. It costs in every imaginable way. But oh, it's worth it. And then later they decide they're going to have a family. They have a child or maybe several children. <laughs> you don't think that costs, you haven't been paying attention. And it doesn't just cost until they're 18 or 21 or 25 or whatever. It's going to cost the rest of your life. We don't even have pets 
without it costing us. And I'm not just talking about financially. We get attached to those creatures. And there's a price there. You cannot love someone or something without it costing you. There's no way around it. And when we begin to really love one another the way they're talking about here in Acts chapter 4, it's very, very costly. Kind of reminds me of a book written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer a long time ago. He lived in, uh, he was a German theologian and priest, lived in Germany the time the Nazi regime took over. They eventually imprisoned him because he wouldn't kind of go along with them and finally was executed. But he had written some books. One was called The Cost of Discipleship. And I think that book can be summed up with one statement he wrote in it. He said, when Christ bids, oh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now, that doesn't sound very appealing, does it? That's not something that's going to play very well to 21st century America. Why, why, why would Jesus want to do something like that? I mean, this is not exactly a version of the health and wealth gospel that is so popular today. What's he trying to do? Scare people away? Is he, is he trying to like make life miserable for his followers? Is this some, some sort of twisted spiritual masochism that he's into? No. Not at all. He just understands that in order to experience the kind of incredible life God intends for us to know, it can't come without sacrifice. It's not going to happen. This week I read the story of a man who had a great opportunity he missed out on. The guy's name was Arthur. His friend, Walter, called him up one day and said, hey, I want to take you for a drive. He said, oh, sure. They lived out in the Los Angeles area, so they, they went for a drive, and they went long way out from the city. I mean, that where there was nothing. He said, finally, Walter pulled over to the side of the road, stopped, and they got out, and there was nothing there. I mean, there was a shack over there and one over there, and there's some couple of cows grazing. There's just nothing. And Walter began to describe to his friend Arthur this, this vision that he had, this, this, this plan that he had for, for this property. And he said, it's going to be this incredible development. It's going to be so amazing. People are going to come from all over the country here. And he, he said, not only that, people will come and, and families will spend their entire vacation here. And he just went on and on describing what it was going to be like and, and, and how wonderful it was going to be. And then he said, now, look, are there, I don't, I'm not trying to raise money for this. I don't need I've got, I've got the capital to swing this, this deal myself. But he said, I, I don't have enough to buy all the land surrounding this development. And I want you to know about it because you're, you're one of my best friends. And, and I want you to have the opportunity to buy some of this land. Because it's, man, in a few years there's going to be hotels and there's going to be restaurants and there's going to be conference centers and all kinds of stuff around here. And if you get in on it now, you're going to do really, really well. He said, in in, in Five years, this land is going to be worth at least a hundred times whatever you pay for it. And Walter said, He listened. 
I mean, Arthur said he listened to his friend describe this, and he thought, man, this is a little far-fetched. I, I, I just, I'm just not sure about this. And he, he, ha- he had the ability to do it, but he said he wasn't going to cash in all of those assets in order to, to bet on this venture. And so as they walked back to the car, Arthur told his friend Walter, he said something about, well, you know, money's kind of tight right now, but I'll, I'll seriously consider it before long. And Walter said, before long will be too late. You need to get on it now. But Arthur didn't. And a couple of years ago, before he passed on, Art Linkletter said that he made a great mistake when he didn't buy up the property around what became Disneyland in Anaheim, California. Reminds me of something Jesus said in Matthew 13. In verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And one day a man found the treasure, and then he hid it in the field again. He was so happy, he went and sold everything he owned to buy that field. When you realize how valuable something really is, you don't have a problem getting rid of some other stuff in order to have that because you understand it's going to pay off more than anything else you could ever imagine. I think our problem today is pretty much the same as Art Linkletter's was. We just don't really believe what Jesus is telling us. So we try to hold on to God with one hand and keep hold of all the stuff that we love in the world with the other. But it doesn't really work. It's never going to work. We wind up being kind of miserable that way. What if? Just, just what if we learn to love each other the way these people did in Acts chapter 4 and treat each other that way? What do you think that might look like? Fred Craddock old preacher in the Restoration Movement. He talked about when he was a young preacher. He said, before I married, I was serving a little church in the Appalachians. And it was the custom in that church at Easter to have a baptismal service, and it was held out on a lake at Easter evening at sundown. Out on the sandbar, I stood with the candidates for baptism. And after they were immersed, the candidates moved out of the water, changed clothes in the little booths constructed out of hanging blankets and then went to the fire in the center. Last of all, I went over and changed clothes and went to the fire where the little congregation was gathered singing and cooking supper. Once we were all around the fire, Glenn Hickey, it was always Glenn, introduced the new people. He gave their names, where they lived, and what they did for a living, and then, and then the rest of us formed a circle around them while they stayed warm at the fire. And the next part of the ritual was that each person around the circle gave his or her name and said something like, well, my name is, and if you ever need somebody to do washing and ironing, call on me. My name is, and if you ever need anybody to chop wood, you can call on me. My name is, and if you ever need anybody to babysit, you can call on me. My name is, and if you ever need anybody to repair your house, you can call on me. My name is, and if you ever need anybody to sit with you when you're sick, just call me. 
And my name is, and if you ever need anybody to give you a ride into town, you can call on me. And he said they went all the way around that circle. And then they ate. Then they had a little square dance. And then at a time, he said he didn't know, but a time when they all knew, Percy Miller, with his thumbs and his bibbed overalls, said, well, it's about time we went home. And they all got their stuff and made their way home. And Percy stayed and kicked sand on the fire to make sure it was all out. And he said, he said, they have a, they have a name for that in that little community. So they have a name for it in other communities too. The name for that kind of ritual is, is church. They call that church. What would happen if we became church like that? I want to end our consideration of this this morning with a word from the ladies who had the book club that this past summer or fall, whenever. They were asked a question. They said, what can you challenge us in the church with? What, what can the people at Greenville Oaks learn from your experience with this book? Listen to what they had to say. They need to look at their lives and see what they're true focus on. Are you um, addicted to your work? Are you addicted to just being busy? And some of us truly are, that you can't. What if you were just forced to sit still? Just sit still. Could you do it? Um, think about what is getting in your way. And I think that's so powerful because you don't even realize what is. Is it media? Are you a, a DVR person that you have? I can't go anywhere on Tuesday night because I have four shows I want to watch. <laughs> I mean, or, are you a shopper? Do you just have to go buy clothes or whatever? I mean, we can be addicted to so many things, and I think that clutter, it clutters our mind. We can't focus on the true focus of God. I think that the temptation to compare ourselves to those around us and say, mm -hmm. we're doing okay as far as, but I don't spend that much money, and I don't <laughs> spend it on that, I think we think we're doing okay, but God doesn't call us to that. We're called to be holy, and uh, I'm, I'm in the American dream, we we all get sucked in, and we're we're called to be in the world, but not of the world, and that's going to be a constant struggle for us as long as we walk on this earth. And so, I think the challenge would be to constantly see what you can eliminate and move away from, and where your heart truly is. Impressed upon me that. Part of stewardship is taking care of everything, being responsible for everything God has given me. And that includes this earth. And so, I don't know, that was just something that really said, ooh, Michelle, this has your name on it. because, And not even just the creation, but even our time. Mm -hmm. Because our time is such a gift. And how am I spending my time? Am I just filling it with busyness? Or am I using my time in a way that glorifies God. It broadened my thoughts about stewardship. Absolutely. It's not just money. It's right. not just my checkbook. Right. It's managing my whole life. Mm -hmm. Stewardship is what really spoke to me about it, is that um, 
a stewardship of everything that we yeah. have. Right. Our, our time, our God-given gifts, just all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll just say that we're looking for ways to help. Mm-hmm. And as a group, we've already come up with several things to do, and we're really wanting to do things mm-hmm. to help and to just use our resources in a better way. Father, we, we love you, and we really want to be fully devoted.